This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Science Clear and Vivid, conversations about how curiosity is the engine of discovery and innovation. The most amazing thing is that human curiosity, to think about something that wasn't there before, that's the great force of progress. But people never ever have these ideas because they want to solve a specific problem. You know, it's it's their imagination. They, They just want to see what's out there. And I think by fully enabling that force, you actually get the most practical solution. That's Robert Dykegraaff. We're kicking off our special series on how innovation has been the driver of spectacular achievements in science, technology, and medicine since World War II, and how innovation depends on curiosity and imagination, on trying to understand in the most basic way how the world works. And as the head of one of the foremost curiosity-driven institutes in the world, the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, Robert Dykraft is the perfect person to get us started. This is so great to be talking to you. Oh, it's a pleasure. I had a wonderful time visiting you at the Institute for Advanced Studies, where you're the director. Yes. And I, you know, not a lot of people know what goes on there. We have that iconic picture of Einstein riding his bicycle around the grounds. How would you describe it? Well, it's a it's a paradoxical place because on the one hand, it looks superficially extremely quiet. Uh, people are sitting in their studies. It's uh, quite bucolic with the beautiful grounds. So it seems to be very relaxing. And on the other hand, it's a place of extreme pressure because people come there really to think deep, to have you know, wonderful new ideas. And often I joke that, uh, and they can do this, Uh, without any constraints. And I joke that a place with no pressure is actually a place with maximum pressure. (laughs) Because you're stuck with your thoughts. (laughs) You're stuck with yourself. It's a place, uh, one of the most famous directors of the Institute was Robert Oppenheimer. And he said that, uh, you know, it's a place without any excuses. And that's Uh, bad because we human beings... That's pressure. Yeah. We need excuses. We need distractions. We love distractions because it gives us an, uh, an apology, you know, not to think deep thoughts. You can't say the dog ate my theory. And you're exactly, in big trouble. Exactly. <laughs> so what kind of advanced thinking goes on there? Is it, is it all physics and uh, cosmology or do you cover a wide range? Well, it's quite unique in that it covers the full range of, of thinking. So indeed physics and mathematics, but also history, philosophy, the social sciences, theoretical biology. It's a very special institution in the sense that it's, it doesn't have students, it only has professors and scholars, and it covers all different fields. And sometimes I worry, because if, if there's only one place in the world that does it, that either means it's a g- genius idea, or it's perhaps a silly idea. 
<laughs> it's just only one cushion. That's all you need. Exactly. <laughs> but but I, you, you bring up an interesting question. There are no students. Yes. Are they students of one another? Yes, they How are. How much do they mix? And, and what are the occasions of mixing? Is it at the lunch table? or Because they all live there, right? We, they all live together. So we have two, three hundred scholars living together. And the first time I came, I was a young physicist. I felt it's almost like in a computer game where you go to the next level and you start again with zero points because I got my PhD and I felt, well, I'm an independent researcher, went to the institute and I felt again like a freshman, like a first year student. You, know, you, you start all over again. Uh, and now the professors are replaced by, you know, really geniuses. And since there's no excuse of you know, committee meetings or teaching, whatever, everybody is available to discuss. So you have these intense conversations about your field that can last like many, many hours. And so that means that you're continuously educating each other. Uh, you're asking questions, you are in conversations. Um, and that could be, you know, in your office, but could also be during lunch or during a walk in the woods. Again, a place of maximum pressure and focus. And I remember when I walked on these grounds as a young physicist, I felt I, I better do something important because otherwise, you know, <laughs> why, why spend time here? How, how are they chosen? What makes somebody a, a resident there? Well, there's a very strict selection process. So, you know, we have permanent faculty professors and uh, they, they basically are told just only do research. That's the thing why you're here. But they also have one task, which is like to select what we call the members, the 200 plus people who are invited each year to come, many of them very young. And so it's a, it's a very rigorous process of selection. And I would say, you know, we, we dig perhaps a few layers deeper in terms of finding interesting candidates. It's not only the people with, uh, you know, stellar resumes, but it's, did somebody show original thinking? Um, is, it, is it an interesting kind of spice to add to the stew that you are creating? And so I would say we take extra care and time in kind of selecting, curating this group of people and hoping that the kind of chemical reactions appear among them and that's you know that's uh, that's a very subtle um art i would say it's really an art it's it, you can't yeah. uh, have a computer uh figure out how to <laughs> how to build such a group not yet but i'm sure you have somebody there who's working on that i guess so yes <laughs> <laughs> So what about your own original thinking? How do you manage to turn off your administrative brain and turn on your creative mathematical brain and switch from one to the other? How do you do that? It's very difficult. I would say that, you know, anybody who, um, you know, is, uh, tries to manage uh, more than one thing. Um, in, in my case, it would be doing research, uh, directing the institute, but also, you know, speaking about it and... and it's, I joke, you know, you're, you're always in a place where you are failing in all direction equally. <laughs> you're somehow in this, uh, this kind of most uncomfortable place. Um, but for me, what really helps is to be among great colleagues. So, um, so you, I think it's one of the great pleasures of being a research scientist is 
to be among friends. To, you know, together you build a bubble in which it, it's okay to concentrate on these matters. And I must say, anybody who has a career in science, they, they started because they were passionate about one thing, right? So that's, that's your original love. And it doesn't take that much to, to get back to it. Um, but I'll be honest, you know, sometimes you'll have to switch and it's painful. Uh, certainly, I think, you know, developments in science go very rapidly. So if you're not paying attention for you a few days, <laughs> then uh, the, the might, a, a revolution might have happened. So what about your original passion? Is yes. it still your passion? What got you into the field you're in now? I think for me... Um, I was kind of a late bloomer in the sense that um, it was only when I was like in high school or something that I uh, discovered there was something like research in math and physics um, that you could do at the university or something. But I, I was extremely attracted to it because particular theoretical physics seemed to be about capturing a part of reality in terms of mathematical equations that you can write down, that you can manipulate. Like it's almost like capturing the universe on a page. It sounds like you have in math a kind of telescope that can see things that can't be seen with the naked eye. I think that's true. I think if you ask me how I think about, say, an electron, uh -huh. then I think in the end... For me, it is this solution to this mathematical equation. And I think that actually is the closest we can get to the truth. And everything I say about it, every image I paint, every, every metaphor is, is incomplete. And the wonderful thing of using mathematics is that you, you have this sense of a piece of the puzzle really fitting in. And, you know, when you put a puzzle piece in and it says click, because it really, <laughs> yeah, yes, that yeah. click feeling is what it's all about. So it's not, a, it's yeah. not, uh, you know, it's okay, it's, it's a reasonably good fit. No, it fits exactly. It was meant to be there. And that, that gives great internal pleasure. And there's something absolute in understanding things mathematically which on the one hand is very satisfying because you, you feel you got to the, to the kernel of it. On the other hand, it also allows you to move on because once you put a piece of the puzzle in, you can start looking for the other piece. You don't have to worry about the one that you already have put in. The idea of the click yes. is it's a great image. And it comes from the idea that the puzzle was stamped out and there's only one place that piece will fit. Yes. Does your thinking go beyond what you just said to include the idea that nature doesn't only allow us to probe it with math mathematics, but nature is mathematics, and there are pieces that we can get to fit together? <laughs> well, this might be true, but in, uh, in a more complicated way than we think because we think of mathematics as a given toolbox that you learn at school or at university and then the question is if if nature is this big engine you know can our tools work on that engine do we fully can can we kind of take it apart and, and put it back together again 
But one thing we've learned in science that whenever we move in a new arena, and like for instance Newton moving into the world of understanding the motions of planets and of objects, he had to re or he had to invent a whole new branch of mathematics that now we all use every day. We call it calculus. Mm. Mm. So I think nature might be uh, all math, but I think large part of that math hasn't been discovered yet. And one thing we are you know, really are struggling with these days is that you now science moves into arenas that are very far removed from our imagination, right? If you think about the largest objects in the universe or the smallest particles or you know the complexity of a human brain then our math is you know we might have a hammer and a screwdriver but we need something much more refined and sophisticated so i think often we are missing the right kind of language to describe it mm. but i'm actually very confident that we at some point we find those new words those new phrases and we'll We'll learn it as we do with our current mathematics. Can you tell me in a couple of sentences what you're working on now so that I get it? What I'm working about now is that you know, everything we learn in modern physics is that space and time, which are you know, like the background for everything we do, right? We, we move in space and you know, we experience time that space and time are not the final end of everything, that there is something more fundamental. If you combine space and time with quantum theory, it basically tells you that it's, uh, no, it's an illusion. It's like you're looking at the, uh, at the picture on your computer screen. You, know, you can see something, but if you look close up, you see little pixels, and actually you're looking at zeros and ones in a, in a very clever way dis displayed. So... Uh, it, and so we know, in some sense, by studying black holes, by studying cosmology, that there should be something more fundamental than space and time. And I really want to know what is that mathematical concept? What could be even more fundamental than geometry, which is how like math started millennia ago? Essentially, what I feel is we, we're trying to learn the native language of quantum theory. Um, which is uh, a very different language than how we describe, you know, our everyday world experiences. And, and I think that's, that's one of the big open questions in science. And that language that we use in terms of words, not mathematical language, is limited by how we've been designed by evolution, how we wound up through evolution to experience the world the way we do. I, I remember we were doing a science program. We were going all around the world talking about the universe. And I, everybody I talked to, I said, I can't, I can't picture the fourth dimension. Mm. I'm, I want to picture the fourth dimension. And one guy finally said, what makes you think you're the one person in eight billion who can picture the fourth dimension? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Although I must say there was this wonderful mathematician, uh, Bill Thurston, who uh, was at some point lecturing and he was describing how he was moving through the fourth dimension, you know, and he was, and he, at some point he looked at the audience and 
there were all these blank stares, like, well, what's he doing? <laughs> and then he stopped. He stopped and he said, oh, uh, excuse me. I think, of course, you know, this is, this is just much too complicated. You shouldn't do this in four dimensions. You should do this in five dimensions. <laughs> <laughs> then you'll get it. <laughs> then you'll get it. <laughs> no, but it's a deep point you make, I think. And I'm actually really surprised by this every day. That though we were shaped by evolution, our brain was there to understand throwing rocks, uh, jumping over, you know, uh, stones, um, dealing with everyday business. So, if you think of our brain as a tool, it's I find it absolutely astonishing that we can survive and understand worlds that we never lived in before. So there's something extremely generous in the universe that it allows us with this very, very limited brain capacity to enter into worlds that we were never supposed to enter. I think this is a very important message to all of us because it basically shows that you know, the promises that science has is really understanding the world, all elements of it. We are probably right to be optimistic that you know, with our very limited brains, by connecting everybody together to uh, with including wonderful machines that we devise with learning from our predecessors we collectively able to go into worlds that we have never seen before and actually understand it the thing that gets me though and to a great extent because you and I share a passion for communicating what's known to folks who don't get it yet, including me. I'm mm -hmm. the first one in line. And the deeper you go, the harder it is for me to follow you. Yes. Each new step you take requires a whole new understanding, sometimes a whole new vision. How do you hope to do something about that? Well, I think it's uh, indeed true that, um, by definition, science moves away from us, right? Because we mm. dig deeper, we go to hidden layers. Um, but you know, the, the remarkable thing is there are, there are elements, even in the most breakthrough science, that you can communicate to um, a, a wide audience. One of my favorite anecdotes for this is, you know, I was once explaining something about... Uh, you know, elementary physics, you know, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a little trick. You can do it at home. You know, you fill a balloon with water and you try to, with a lighter, try to burn a hole in the balloon. And you can do this for great effect by holding the balloon on top of somebody's head. That looks very scary. And it does it. I did, never heard of this. The balloon won't burst? Won't burst because, and then I... I have a, had a nice story to explain, but well, it takes a lot of energy to heat up water, right? It's if you have a kettle yeah. on the on the stove and it's filled with water, it takes a long time for it to boil. And an empty kettle, actually, you know, it becomes hot very very soon. And I felt very good about myself. And then the next day, I got an email from a famous physicist who saw my presentation. He says, "Robert, I, I like the experiment, but you're." explanation was completely wrong <laughs> and i say why and he says you didn't show this to explain the properties of of water you showed this experiment because you wanted to show you can trust science 
Now, you knew that there was a law of nature forbidding you to burn a hole in the balloon. So there was a much bigger message that was explained by this small experiment. And I think there are certain elements of science that people can understand about what a fact is, how the scientific method works, how, how we build this large structure without understanding the precise details of what we are discovering. And I learned from that anecdote that you know we should, even if you're in love with all the details of your research, you should not ignore that there is this bigger message that you can share and that everybody can understand. You seem to be really in touch with the malleability of time and space because you collaborated on a book with the first director of the Institute for Advanced Studies who was around 90 years ago. Yes. But you managed to collaborate with him on a book. And then you tried to get a blurb from Einstein. Exactly, yeah. So I, How did that work out? Well, I thought so. This is wonderful because the first director of the Institute, Abram Flexner, wrote this wonderful essay, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge, which just because of his title is perfect. It explains... <laughs> yeah. How, how wonderful basic research is. And I thought, well, you know, he was the first director. He brought Einstein to Princeton. So uh, Einstein has so many different quotes. I should get a nice quote of Einstein about Flexner. And would it be great to publish a book right now <laughs> with a blurb by Einstein say, I really like this book? Uh, <laughs> so I looked up the, um, the unabridged quote uh, ultimate collection of Einstein quotations, which is like more than 600 pages about, you know, everything that he said. And I look in the index when there's anything about Abram Flexner. And I saw this one quote. So I'm, I'm in luck. So I look up the quote and says, Abram Flexner, one of my few enemies. <laughs> <laughs> That's the part I don't get. He brought him to, to Princeton. Yes, he brought but, Einstein to Princeton. So what? He got he changed his mind then, or what? Well, the thing is, so first of all, it shows that you know, uh, doing any uh, academic administration is a thankless job. But uh, <laughs> right, right. Actually, Flexner had very specific views on what Einstein should do, and he was a little bit worried that Einstein was very outspoken. So even when Einstein was on the boat from Europe to the U.S., he sent him a telegram. Uh, no, make no political statements. Uh -huh. and, and when Einstein arrived in Princeton, President Roosevelt invites him to the White House and Flexner intercepts that invitation and writes back, you will understand that Professor Einstein is a very busy man. You know, he has to do his science. He's not interested. Wow. wow. And so I think uh, Einstein felt that, um, no, he's, uh, he's clearly a great scientist, but he also felt he wanted to communicate to the world. And uh, he didn't want to be confined into one of these roles. Well, the book that you worked on with Flexner <laughs> in absentia. <laughs> yes is fascinating, has a fascinating title. What do you think is the most useful thing about so-called useless knowledge? What's most useful about it? What I think um, we need in knowledge is we, we want to make progress. But it's very difficult to make progress because, you know, you're, 
you you have to cross a certain barrier. You have to do something. You have to have an idea that nobody else had before. And how how do you do this? And I think the the most amazing thing is that human curiosity, human imagination, is able enables us to go into this new world. Uh, so there is just the inner drive of people allows them to have new ideas, new devices, to, to think about something that wasn't there before. And that's the great force of progress. But people never ever have these ideas because they want to solve a specific problem. You know, it's, it's their imagination. They, they just want to see what's out there. And I think by fully enabling that force, you actually get the most practical solutions because you're, you're able to pass these barriers that are otherwise very difficult to cross. We never know what it's going to. It's almost impossible with the most profound new understanding of nature. It's almost impossible at the time to know what it's going to lead to if it does, in fact, lead to some practical application later. I, I heard you talking about Faraday once. Well, in, in those days, in the 19th century, you know, people like Faraday were doing these experiments with electricity, you know, where your hair would stand up and magnets. And it was like magic, you know, it was amusement. Uh, and then at some point, uh, I think the, the story is that the the uh, chancellor of the Exchequer, the, the minister of finance, came and said to Professor Faraday, what's all this magnets and electricity good for? And uh, Faraday apparently said, I have no idea, but someday you will tax it. <laughs> and not only do they tax it, they, they can't tax it without electricity. Exactly, exactly. So uh, it's almost impossible to imagine, of course, the impact of electricity, right? Right now... Nowadays, I think, you know, our complete world is electrified. I think, you know, we have a very limited amount of imagination to see the practical consequences of a new discovery. But I think one thing we have also learned, it's very difficult to make real progress in certain areas without first having a fundamental understanding. So to give an example, you know, if you think about all the breakthroughs we are seeing these days in the medical, the biomedical field, mm. impossible to think of that without first understanding the role of DNA, of the role of the various molecules that play a role in human cells. So we first needed to make these fundamental breakthroughs with basic research, even in order to move into this, this new realm of um, of practical application. It it makes me think of what we were talking about earlier about your institute, where smart people are getting together and inspiring each other with new ideas they might not have thought of separately. It I wonder if the folks who are who have their hands on this new basic understanding as it comes to their minds, if they need people from other disciplines who can see how it can be applied in their discipline. And because if, if you're down in the bottom of the well, having dug way deep, are you really aware that you can make 
the world's best coffee pot out of this discovery. (laughs) (laughs) No, you're not. And so I think, you know, uh, as much as I cherish my brilliant colleagues and the power of an individual, I do feel in the end, you know, science is a collective phenomenon. We're all there together. And, you know, we have various different roles to play. And I think these days, the great, the great strength of why I'm so optimistic about the current state of science is that we have this extreme form of connectivity. You know, we're all in touch with each other. We're sharing information. It's much more one organic brain. So I think actually the fact that we are outsmarting nature sometimes is not that because individually we are so smart, but we are connecting all these brains together. Not only in the current time, but we're also connecting to whatever people thought like many years or centuries before. So it's, it is an organic thing. And you're quite right that um, in some sense there are much more pathways how knowledge can flow. It, it spreads much faster. Um, there, are, there are many more ways technologically to inform others. And so I think that makes it a, a much more much more interesting phenomena than just people digging holes. No, it's that's not <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's a great note of hope to end our conversation on. We happen to be out of both time and space. <laughs> but it's all an illusion. It's all an illusion. <laughs> that's right. So it doesn't matter. It's just floating out into the ether, it which is. doesn't even exist. Great to talk with you again, Robert. I really have enjoyed it. Thank you, Alan. And thank you for everything you're doing to spread the message. Thank you for what you're doing to spread the message. Bye-bye for now. This has been Science Clear and Vivid. My thanks to the Codley Foundation for sponsoring these conversations about how breakthroughs in technology and medicine often begin with simple curiosity, asking of nature, why is that? Robert Dykgraf is the director of the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, New Jersey, and the author of the book, The Usefulness of Useless Knowledge, co-authored with his long-deceased predecessor, Abraham Flexner. You can explore the work of the Institute of Advanced Study on its website, iaS.edu, which also has a link to a recent discussion hosted by Robert on blue sky research to prepare for an uncertain future. The panel included the brand new Nobel laureate and 2018 Kavli Prize winner and recent guest on Clear and Vivid, Jennifer Doudna. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to the Science Clear and Vivid podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Our program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation with a mission to advance science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is implemented internationally through a constellation of Kavli Institutes that support scientists who conduct basic, curiosity-driven research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience, 
and also by the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in these fields that transform our understanding of the very big, astrophysics, the very small, nanoscience, and the very complex, neuroscience. And the mission of the Copley Foundation is also implemented by programs that support public engagement with science, enhancing how society encounters, interacts with science, and uses science in their daily lives. Next time on Science Clear and Vivid, I talk with Harvey Feinberg. His career has included being dean of the Harvard School of Public Health, provost of Harvard University, and president of the Institute of Medicine. When I was an undergraduate, nuclear magnetic resonance was an idea we learned about in physics uh, as a property of atoms. When I finished my training, nuclear magnetic resonance was already the basis of the most fundamental advances in imaging in modern medicine. That combination of basic science, technologic advance, application in the population that accounted for the ability of our nation and nations around the world to make the progress in life and health that we have enjoyed over the past century plus. Harvey Feinberg, and why basic research is the key to both present day and future progress, next time on Science Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs>